Good morning, Meeting House family. So good to see you. Uh, here we are, our second week of our Peace Be With You series. Uh, my name is Quincy. I'm one of the pastors here in Oakville, and I'm happy to be here with you. And uh, yeah, this is week two of Peace Be With You. And I love how Carmen set us off last week saying that this is kind of our sweet spot as a church. Uh, we can spend a lot of time uh, in, our, in our own minds, in our heads, in our imaginations, but there's a, a beautiful thing that happens when we can actually become the hands and feet of the one we say that we're following and be engaged intentionally with some of the things that are happening in our world and, uh, and, and what's happening around us. And sometimes we can get uh, so caught up with all of the things that are happening in a broad sense, in a global sense, that we can neglect what's happening close uh, to home. Uh, where we actually live. And so we want to spend some time uh, this morning talking about that. And I'm not alone up here. As you can see, I want to introduce uh, a good friend, uh, colleague, and fellow Meeting House pastor, Steve McDowell, who's, whoop, whoop, yeah, yeah, for sure, <laughs> big time, uh, who's become a good friend and somebody who uh, I, I'm, I'm getting to know and have so much respect for and, uh, and love what he, uh, what he has to bring to us. Uh, a college professor, uh, a third place aficionado, uh, neighborhood enthusiast. Um, what else can we call you? Uh, pastor here at the Meeting House. Pastor here at the Meeting House, which yeah. is great. Yeah, yeah, so I'm happy to have you here. And uh, to give us some context, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. It was in the, in the quotes already. Um, but I'm just going to read it again to uh, start us on this conversation of what it is to be... Uh, intentionally present in our neighborhoods and where we live. Um, it's Jeremiah uh, chapter 29, starting in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters and find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So Steve, maybe it'll be helpful for us if we have a little bit of historical context to to why this was written and who it was written to, just to get some understanding. Yeah. So full disclosure, this is one of my favorite passages <laughs> of Scripture uh, in the whole of the canon. I really find that this is a profoundly rich and meaningful text. And we come to it and we launch into seek the peace and prosperity of the city a lot. Maybe you've heard that passage along the way, and it's pretty meaningful and dynamic. And if that's true and that's the invitation, that's pretty exciting, uh, I think. But there's this whole kind of flow to the passage before we actually get there. And so for some context, the people of Israel find themselves taken over by a foreign ruler by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe some of you are familiar with that name. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes over Jerusalem. And in taking over Jerusalem, he reveals what certain ancient leaders would do when taking over a civilization like the people of Israel. There's different ways that ancient leaders would take over neighboring states. Uh, one way is to endure uh, military action against them and then to enslave them and their population. That's one approach. 
Another approach we see ancient leaders do is they take over through military action a neighboring state, and instead of enslaving them, they just tax them really heavily. They allow them to have their own kind of customs and culture still, but they get heavily taxed and they're kind of governed from a distance. But what we see in this passage is that Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of Babylon, takes over Jerusalem. What he does is he brings the culture makers, the poets, the artists, the artisans, the decision makers, the influential people amongst the, the community of Israel, and he brings them to Babylon. And the hope there is, is that over time, they would just become good Babylonians. They would become enthralled by the culture of Babylon, the rhythms of life there, the beliefs, the economic way of being. All of these things would become so enticing. So instead of forcing them to become Babylonians, the hope is to fascinate them to become Babylonians. That over time, that maybe through osmosis, they would become good Babylonians. And then the Babylonians get the gift of this new people group, right? The assets, the capacities. And this is one way to conquer a neighboring empire is to bring them to yours, to influence them over time, to help them fall in love with this new place that they exist in, and then to get all the benefit of having these new people in your midst. It's a pretty effective form, actually, of assimilation, especially if you have a compelling culture like the Babylonians did, and, and, and they're certainly notable there. But what we observe in this passage is that the people of Israel are hearing something locally amongst their own people, these local prophets. These local prophets are saying, don't get too comfortable here because ultimately there's another home for you. This is temporary. This is not God's plan for you to be here. God did not bring you here. We are going to be ultimately moving somewhere else. And so don't get too comfortable in this space. And then we hear this prophetic word. That message sounds familiar though, right? Don't get too comfortable here. Yeah, this is yeah. not your home. That's right. The, the great by and by. So there's something similar, uh, similar to what I think we hear and also other religious That's right. uh, groups will hear is that don't put too much emphasis in the here and now. Mm. It's all about the by and by. So it's interesting that that doesn't sound like a bad message. It maybe sound like a familiar one. Yeah. But Jeremiah has something else in mind, I think, is what you're getting to. That's right. I mean, God's pretty direct through the prophet here that, that you're just stop listening to those people because they're not speaking on God's behalf and that actually it was God who carried them into exile. So it wasn't by accident that they find themselves in Babylon, but that God himself moved them into this new city, into this metropolis, and that he's inviting them to make this their home in a very real and dynamic and tangible way. Build homes, plant gardens, get your fingers dirty in the tasks of cultivating the land. Maybe plant things that you're not even gonna see grow and flourish for years. Experience your place in this very holistic way because this is the place I've carried you. This is the place where I've placed you. And this is your home. So stop listening to those other voices telling you to dream of being somewhere else because this is it. As far as you're concerned, this is where you're to be. So how then would this uh, particular passage be a good framework for us understanding uh, how we can be present mm. or, or how it applies to us? I think there's a pretty intentional flow to this passage. So again, the instinct is to jump to the seek, the flourishing, the peace, the prosperity of the city. And that's kind of the apex of the passage, but there's a few steps to get there. The first is this invitation to move in, I think, that we see in this passage. 
uh, that you're to actually move in and take up space in a locality. And we have New Testament affirmation for this idea. We celebrate it at Christmas in the incarnation. Uh, the word became flesh and blood. And in the words of Eugene Peterson's uh, version of John chapter one, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That the incarnation, there's a particularity to it. That God comes to us in a very personal and intimate proximity, disarming proximity. And that actually can shape our own sense of being a community who exists in the places and spaces that we live out our lives in. The, the fancy theological way, the seminary way to say this would be that our Christology informs our missiology, right? The idea that the way of Jesus, the way that he comes to us actually shapes how we move out into our places and spaces, right? Discerning what God's up to there. Because here's the truth, friends. God has been active in our neighborhoods long before we got there. It will be present and active, stirring up dynamic and interesting and fascinating things long after we're gone. And so part of our invitation here is to move in, right? To, to, to plant gardens, to build homes, to give our kids away in marriage, mm. to become part of the fabric of that place. And to, to ultimately, in that passage, also concludes with the idea that we, we, we tie up our well-being with the well-being of that place, right? That's part of that Jeremiah 29 passage is that, that when the locality is thriving, your proximity to it is so close and so intimate that you feel that too. When your neighbors are celebrating, the proximity is so close that you celebrate too. When our neighbors are mourning, when our neighbors are unhoused, we feel that too because we've tied up our well-being with the well-being of the city or the particularity of the neighborhood that we actually exist in. So there's this invitation to, to move in, but then there's also this invitation to become attached. And I think that's where we start to get into the build homes and plant gardens piece, to become attached. Because there's something powerful about our senses, right? When we utilize our senses, think about some of your most visceral memories. When you think about some of your most visceral memories from the past, there's a good chance that you're using multiple senses, right? There's probably a smell, there's something you're seeing, tasting, touching, right? Our senses are incredibly powerful. And over time, when we use our senses in a particular place, we can develop place attachment. So I think one of the reasons that God invites the people of Israel to plant gardens, to get their fingernails dirty in that cultivation, is because in doing that, they would have these sensory experiences and over time, over the span of years, would develop a deeper attachment to that place. Because what good would the people of Israel be if all they did was sit in their homes and talked about stories of old, of how good it was when we were in Jerusalem, mm. or stories of the future where God ultimately might take us. What good would they be for their present neighborhood and context? How could they possibly seek the flourishing of their place if they hadn't really moved in, if they hadn't really become a part of the fabric of that place, and if they weren't utilizing these senses, which over time would cultivate this kind of attachment to a locality. And then it's from that vantage point, you move in, you experience the place holistically, and then seek the peace, the prosperity, the welfare, the well-being of the place that God has carried you into. Because at that point, you're uniquely positioned, I think, to start to discern the needs and longings and hopes of the places and spaces we've been carried into. It takes that kind of presence and attentiveness. And maybe over the span of years, in all that we're talking about today, I feel like that's an important caveat to make, is there's no immediacy in this. This is a long road. This is a hard to pitch 
because ultimately the invitation is years of faithful presence in a place discerning what God might be up to there. Some of the most fascinating stories that I hear about what God's up to in different neighborhoods tend to happen around the five to seven year mark. Now that's not to say that it won't happen quicker for you, but often when you hear a message like this, you think, I'm gonna go into my neighborhood. By next week, we're gonna have a block party. We're gonna have a sharing economy where we share skills and resources and capacities. All of our assets will be used. And most people who jump to that, and that's my instinct as well, to, to think big, to scale quick, uh, we tend to feel disappointed. And then we become the worst enemy of any kind of real neighborhood movement because our neighbors never match up to our expectations of, right. of what should happen in our places. And so, again, to get to the passage, this move in, become attached, and then from that vantage point of really being a known character in the neighborhood and knowing what's going on there and listening and, and being attentive, then we begin to see the opportunities where I think we can leverage our own skills and capacities in a way that seeks the flourishing, the peace, this holistic well-being of our places, while also receiving something from our neighbors. That God's actually at work in our places and through his grace is at work through our neighbors, wooing us to himself through the people around us. And so we don't only bring something, but we discover that God's actually in the neighborhood mm -hmm. waiting for us there. And we discern that around the tables and the tension of it all. And so we're not just bringers of good news. We do have a story to share, yeah. uh, but sometimes, we're gonna receive something. And sometimes we, we get that twisted where we think that because we're uh, people who follow Jesus and somehow we have the goods on the goods, mm. right? Like that anything good that's, uh, that's coming is brought by us yes. as opposed to, like you said earlier, is that God is already at work. He's at work everywhere, mm. even when we don't think that he, he is there. But to then uh, find those people of peace or uh, recognize where God may be at work. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the slow thing, that's not really encouraging, Steve. No, it's slow. Yeah. It is slow. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we can get into some, some practicality. Like, mm. so, so, so what does that look like for us that are wanting to be incarnational? I love that you're talking that, that yeah, there, there is something there for us in Jesus showing a model of not just speaking to us from a, a smoky mountain, mm -hmm. but actually, I love the way uh, Eugene Peterson said, but actually moves into the neighborhood and becomes present with us. Mm. But what are some maybe practical things that we could be thinking about in our spaces? Yeah. Well, the first one I think would be a, a posture. And we were talking about this just today. Mm -hmm. uh, this idea of embracing a posture of disruptibility. It's not, it's not a word. So don't go looking for that word in the dictionary. It doesn't exist, I don't think. But disruptibility, the idea that we're willing to be inconvenienced by the people who we live in proximity to. Uh, I wonder, and if you're anything like me, my schedule tends to not have a lot of margin in it. Uh, I, d I don't have a lot of margin to be disrupted by the people around me. And yet the way of Jesus, I think, compels us to this posture of disruptibility where he takes longer routes to destinations, he wades through crowds, he seems to believe that something really profound happens in the disruption, right? When humans encounter one another, when that collision of humanity occurs, something dynamic is, is made possible. And so I think for some of us, it's just creating enough margin to have room for those disruptions when they come up, right? When we encounter the other in the neighborhood. But I think there are some practical things uh, that maybe we can consider. One, one is walking. So I don't know where you live, but a lot of our cities and neighborhoods are, are not actually designed for walking. They're designed for cars. And when you design a place for cars, often pedestrians get 
missed out. And so this is something, as an aside, uh, we could nerd out about, a, about some other time, uh, just how urban design shapes human connection. So often, depending on the place that we live in, the design of your place might be actually going against you in all of this, right? right. Trying to subvert you along the way. Uh, and so finding ways to overcome the design of our places to meet our neighbors can be a real challenge at times. But I think walking is one of those things that opens us up those, to those sensory experiences, right? We start to experience our places a little more holistically. We start to feel that attachment. We start to open ourselves up to those accidental encounters with neighbors on the sidewalks of our places. You think about uh, the, the modern vehicle, right? the design of the car, uh, is fairly constrictive, right? It's kind of private space. When we walk, we walk through public space, like sidewalks. But the car is a, is a private space, essentially. Often we enter it in our garages, so we go from private space to private space. We drive to our work, which is a secondary space, but it's private in the sense that the public's not typically just walking through our workplaces. And so the design of our cars, paired with the speed that we drive them and the attention needed to drive them safely, really keeps us from holistically experiencing the places that we're going through. And that's also an indicator of the times. I mean, at one point in time, you scale back in human history, uh, we weren't able to work and worship and play in places that are far away from the, the actual places that we inhabit and live in. And so we live increasingly fragmented lives. So one way I think we subvert that is we, we try to walk whenever we can. It, it, it forms attachment. And, and moves us closer to our neighbors in, in tangible, practical ways. Yeah, I've, and I've seen that happen, uh, particularly over the pandemic when mm. we were all kind of locked in, is that when you, you get out and have that rather regular rhythm of walking, yeah. uh, you start to, if you do have a set time, you start seeing the same people over and over again, right? Because you yeah. recognize other people have a rhythm. Sure and it, it's, uh, it's interesting to see how those relationships, and I've heard you say something similar where the, you know, like maybe a friendly wave or a head nod then becomes a hello mm. or a good morning. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as time goes on, the, the, the conversation has the potential to blossom into something more, right? Where relationships can start. It, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a relational ecosystem right. that exists in our places. And, and it's, it's been there for a long time and sometimes we're just not aware of it. But walking is one of those things that opens us up to it. Mm -hmm. The other thing that maybe we could consider this morning is, is third places. So, Third places uh, is, a, is a term coined by a sociologist named Roy, uh, Roy uh, Oldenburg, Ray Oldenburg, sorry. Uh, and he wrote this book called The Great Good Place, talking about these places in our neighborhoods and cities that form human connection and make us more resilient over time as people who find one another. And so there are two uh, third places that I'd like us to consider potentially, and that is the local library and the local coffee shop. 